Hello and welcome to Double Stint, Sports Car 365 Sports Car Racing Podcast. I'm Jonathan Grace and I'm joined today by Sports Car 365 Editor-in-Chief John DeGeese and Sports Car 365 Reporter Daniel Lloyd. Gentlemen, how are your weekends? Pretty busy at uh, Michelin Raceway Road Atlanta, but Jonathan, you and I were treated to quite a race at the end. We absolutely were. I can't wait to dive into that with you today. And Dan, how was your weekend? It was brilliant. Thank you, Jonathan. Yeah, very busy, but a very interesting weekend, very significant weekend as well in terms of the future of GT racing for for one team and manufacturer. But uh, yeah, it was was great to spend some time in the sunny weather of Barcelona and uh, round off the Endurance Cup season. We've got a great show for you. We'll recap this weekend's racing action from Motul Petit Le Mans and GT World Challenge Europe Endurance Cup. We'll bring you the news of the week, answer some listener questions, and give you a preview of what's coming up in the world of sports car racing. All that and more on this week's episode of Double Stint. Well, John, let's dive into talking about Petit Le Mans because it was an instant classic. The last hour of the race, as it usually is at Petit, was action-packed. Acura has won big, though, in multiple ways. We'll start with the overall winner, the number 60 Meyershank Racing Acura, Tom Blomquist, Oliver Jarvis, Elio Castroneves in the driving duties as well. But Jarvis and Blomquist sealing the championship in a dramatic way. The 10 car made contact in traffic, and that sealed the deal with barely any time on the clock. Yeah, it really came down to a final hour battle between the two Acuras. Um, what looked like to be an advantage for the Wayne Taylor car through the maybe middle portion to the final couple hours of the race was turned upside down when there was a caution. Both Chip Ganassi Racing Cadillacs came together, and I'm sure we'll be talking about that a little bit later. But that ultimately was a very well-timed caution for um, the number 60 car, which was able to pit, get ahead of the 10 car in the pits, and um, sort of maintain that lead throughout. Um, We saw Philippe Albuquerque really on it in the final, I say, half an hour of the race. And until he ended up making a, a, a hit with the number 57 Windward Racing Mercedes AMG of Philip Ellis. That ultimately led to suspension damage and day done for the number 10 Wayne Taylor Racing Acura. Um, really heartbreaking there that the championship was sort of lost and potentially lost in that one move. Um, we saw Blomquist was really a rocket ship in his closing stints, but um, Philippe was really giving him a run for the money, and you could tell they were both really flat out throughout those laps. I mean, it's, it's just been great to watch them go at it with each other all season and even throughout the 10 hours due to mainly a lot of the safety cars and the incident with the Cadillacs. By the end of it, in the final hour, the two Acuras were separated by less than a second. It was just tremendous stuff, and they had been battling all the way through. It looked like overall in the race, the Cadillacs had the pace. Of course, taking themselves out of contention doesn't really help your chances for a race win, but it made it exciting towards the end because we thought, okay, well, the championship winner could actually win the race as well, and it turned out well for some of the other Cadillacs too. Action Express and the Ally Cadillac as well ended up being able to have good results that they didn't expect coming into the race. So the final hour was just crazy all around. Yeah, and like you said earlier uh, at the top of the show, this is Petit Le Mans. This is Motul Petit Le Mans. Um, they, there's always action right at the end of the race, and um, even trying to pre-write a, a race report, it just changes in, in, the, in an instant. So um, great excitement. I, I think this was definitely one of the more exciting races in, in recent recent memory, and um, hats off to the entire Meyershank crew because they certainly deserved it because the the car seemed like it was really switched on at the night. And I asked Ali Jarvis about that um, post-race saying, you know, is was there anything that, you know, a focus on a, on a setup uh, to maybe do well in, in the in the, the colder parts of the night and instead of having more of an overall well-rounded car? And he said, 
yeah, that was certainly something they're they were looking at, and um, it, it definitely paid off. The car was a real handful during the during the early hours of the race because the setup was so defined for that nighttime hour when it was going to matter the most. Well, that's one of the things I love about Petite too is it's a race that started in the day and won at night. That's not really something you see at many other endurance races anywhere in the world. And so the setup question is is an interesting one there. And the 60 crew just seemed to get it right. You know, I was talking with Wayne Taylor after the race, and obviously he was crushed, but gave a large amount of credit to the Shank crew as well. I think Acura is in an interesting position too, because both of these teams this week, right now actually as we're recording and as you're listening to this episode when, when it comes out, Acura is testing the GTP car, which means Meyer Shank and Wayne Taylor have to work together after this contentious championship to help develop next year's car. Yeah, um, Tom Blomquist actually just recently said that it's uh, it was a bit of a strange thing uh, when they had a, a Sunday morning meeting with Wayne Taylor and and uh, Myra Schenk all together to try to work on the on the test plan for this this week's test at Michelin Raceway Road Atlanta. It's a three day test that runs through Wednesday. Uh, media are on site Monday and Tuesday only, but nonetheless, yeah, every all the whole focus now is on the future on twenty twenty three getting to Daytona. Um, for the 24 in, in, in having the best prepared car. And these two teams, which fought tooth and nail all year, are now going to be working together. They have been to some extent up until now in the development of the car, but even more so now, um, they're going to be working very, very closely with each other, along with HPD and Acura and and um, Orica and, and all the other partners in, in building up this, this um, ARX-06 package to be another winning championship package, just as we've seen with the ARX-05 and the great battles we've seen all season long this year in the DPI ranks. Well, overall, it was a tremendous send-off race for the DPIs as a class. I don't think you could have asked for much more drama than what we saw in the 10-hour race in Atlanta. We have to talk about the the GT ranks, too, because there was plenty of action there as well. The win in GTD Pro was actually decided by drive time. It was the number 62 Risi Competizione Ferrari who crossed the line first. Daniel Serra was driving and then found out as he was still in the car that they went 11 minutes over the drive time, stripping them of the win and handing it to the Lexus instead. Yeah, crazy stuff again for Reese, um after having a what they thought would have been a podium finish at Watkins Glen. Um, um, lost it with the drive time infraction there. And then all of a sudden, another drive time infraction here, um, this time with um, Daniel Serra exceeding the drive time. And um, you have to sort of wonder what happened there because, you know, a team like Reese is usually on top of things and they have an extremely great uh, engineering and, and strategy crew uh, behind them. But nonetheless, um, it, it handed the win to the number 14 Vaster Sullivan Lexus of Jack Hawksworth, Ben Barnacote, and Kyle Kirkwood, the first endurance victory for the Lexus RCF GT3 after all these years. Um, it was great to see them breakthrough and it was a real dogfight as uh, jack said i think in in the in the post-race press conference in in battling with all these different gtd pro cars in the closing stages um we have a story up on sports car 365 about that and it was just really like bumper cars at times and it was extremely exciting to to see the the battles ensuing um between uh the the ferrari the lexus the the BMW um, Ray Hall car in its final race um, as a factory effort, and as as well as the FAF Motorsports car, which ended up winning the championship in GTD by starting the race with Matthew Gemini and Matt Campbell. So 
Um, ultimately, Campbell and Jaminet got on the podium after the Reese car was moved to the rear of the field. BMW had its best result of the season with um, Connor Felipe, John Edwards, and um, Jesse Crone finishing second. But um, certainly a huge day for Vassar Sullivan and Lexus with that win in GTD Pro. It absolutely was. You mentioned bumper cars. FAF certainly made it exciting. They'd won the championship just by starting the race, but they were going for the overall win. Jaminet pushing the Lexus through the final chicane. I uh, ended up with a four-way battle for the lead in GTD Pro, which was just fabulous to watch. But FAF winning the championship and a podium right at the end, certainly maybe not something they would have expected given where they qualified to start the race, but an excellent weekend all around for FAF. GTD Pro gave us a heck of a battle. And John, we mentioned the Acura one big, and there's a great story about this up on Sports Car 365, but the number 66 gradient racing Acura NSX GT3 won its longest endurance race to date with this car. And with the future of this car in the GT program somewhat unknown, this is very significant for the NSX GT3 to take a win like this at Petit. Yeah, the team's first win, like you said, Jonathan, the first long-distance endurance win for the NSX GT3, again, after all these years as well. Um, they've won the six hours at a Glen a couple times with Meyer Schenk, but I had looked back at some of those intercontinental GT Challenge races with the factory um, Yas Motorsport run operation where they came so close on a couple of occasions. I think the Kailami Nine Hour a couple of years back and and other races too. So this was a huge win for, for Honda globally um, as well as the Acura and HPD support in the U.S., um, narrowly beating out the Inception McLaren, which basically was the class of the field all year, all race long. Um, really interesting situation there because we had Brendan Arib, the, the team's bronze-rated driver, start the race, complete the first, um, his minimum drive time of two and a half hours, hop out, get on a plane, go over to Barcelona, and then take part in the Fanatec GT World Challenge Europe Endurance Cup season finale, also going for a title over there. Um, Inception ended up getting the Michelin Endurance Cup title with the second place finish um, with uh, Jordan Pepper and Seb Prio doing the bulk share of the, of the, of the driving duties. And that was really impressive, too, um, to see how, how Seb um, came to grips with the McLaren. He had an outing with the team back at the uh, Total Energy's 24 Hours of Spa, but um, it seemed that both Pepper and, um, and Prio were very very good in that car unfortunately um the timing of that yellow one of the final yellows sort of caught out um the inception car as um as jordan pitted for for his final pit stop um was trying to leave the pits and the red light came on and i think that was by virtue of the full course yellow being waved that ultimately cost him the lead of the race at that point to Farnbacher. And then the fight was on between those two cars in, in the closing stages until the race ended under yellow after the number 57 windward car pulled off track. So it was really cool to watch the battle between these two really, I say underrated sports car drivers in, 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 in Mario Farnbacher and Jordan Pepper. I, I, I rate them very high, but um, they're, they don't have, you know, super big factory contracts right now. And, and I would consider them to be some of the best GT drivers in the business at, at this time. So um, really hats off to both teams. Um, like, like we said, Inception still ended up with some hardware with the Michelin Endurance Cup title, which was their goal going into the weekend. Um, and um, Arib ends up winning on winning championships on two continents in two days. And um, I'm sure our Dan Lloyd will be getting over to that a little bit later in the show. I was going to say, if you're if you're an Arib fan, stick around because, Dan, I'm going to ask you about this in just a couple of minutes. But you're right, John. It was a tremendous GTD battle. 
Another interesting facet of this race, as if it wasn't interesting enough, was the GTD cars finished ahead of the GTD Pro counterparts. This is the first time this has happened, but it may not be for the reason you think. This happened under safety car. The safety car ended up picking up the then leader, number one, Paul Miller Motorsports BMW, which allowed through the wave around all of the GTD cars to get ahead of the GTD pros. This was a strange one, John. Yeah, I was scratching my head and asking a bunch of people throughout the race of exactly how did this happen? And I finally sort of understood with a couple hours to go after digging digging around and, and listening to some, some explanations. And it was a strange one. Just And it sort of boils down to the wave-by procedures that are in place in the WeatherTech Championship. Um, GTD Pro and GTD run to the same technical regulations, the same BOP, the same sporting regulations for the most part, except for wave-bys. They treat them as two separate classes in those situations. And that's ultimately what caught out um, the situation where... Um, the GTD cars ended up getting a full lap lead over the GTD pros. And it was pretty interesting because the GTD pros were never able to hunt them down um, towards the end of the race. So I think the top five finishing GTD cars ended up ahead of the GTD pros. There was a, there was more GTDs that were ahead at the time of this class split per se. Um, but um mixed reactions post-race, I would say, from some drivers. Um, the Vassar Sullivan guys, which still won GTD Pro, but didn't win outright between the GTD classes. Um, they, uh, Jack Hawksworth suggested that perhaps, you know, have a single wave-by procedure between the two classes, uh, much like what SRO does in Europe, and and I think they do that in the U.S. as well. So um, some some food for thought, I think, heading into next year and, and some possible tweaks that maybe IMSA could take a look at because um, this certainly made it a bit confusing for the fans and um, and even for the journalists trying to cover the race. Well, the action certainly didn't stop there. Finishing fifth overall and first in the LMP2 was the number eight Tower Motorsports car of Ferrano, Delatraz, and Pinto de Andrade. They finished ahead of the Dragon Speed USA car and PR1 Matthias in Motorsports. And in LMP3, it was the Andretti Autosport Ligier finishing 11th overall, winning the class. They finished ahead of JR3 Racing and Sean Creech Motorsport. Super to see the the Tower Motorsport car come out on top. You know, John Ferrano ended up winning the LMP2 title along the way. Um, his main rival in the race, the uh, Era Motorsport number eighteen, Orica of Ryan DL and Dwight Merriman. They had they actually re- retired um, shortly before halfway with um, suspension damage, which was really unfortunate for them. Um, looking at LMP3, uh, a big win for Andretti Autosport there with Jared Andretti, um, Josh Burton, and Gabby Chavez. But the the championship ultimately went to Core Autosports, John Bennett and Colin Brown, who finished fifth in the race, um, just sort of driving around, had some issues of their own, but they kept things under control, um, sharing their car with George Kurtz there in the 10-hour race. Well, it was a great weekend at Road Atlanta. It was a great weekend as well in Barcelona. Dan, uh, you were following the action. Fanatec GT World Challenge Europe Endurance Cup ended their season with a three hours of Barcelona. And it was the number eight, Akotas ASP, Mercedes AMG, who came out on top and took the Endurance Cup championship. Absolutely. Yeah, it it was a fascinating finale, really. Um, Dynamic Motorsport won the race with its number 52 Porsche, but behind there, some really interesting title scenarios playing out across the classes, headlined by the overall championship, as you said, Jonathan, won by Akodis ASP. Mercedes-AMG factory drivers Jules Gounon, Raffaele Marcello and Daniel Junkadea uh, completing the, the title after winning the 24 hours of Spa earlier in the year. Um, it wasn't all plain sailing for them, though. They, they were playing second fiddle, really, to the Iron Lynx Ferrari, uh, driven by Antonio Fuoco. 
Fuoco was essentially captaining the number 71 Iron Lynx crew. Uh, his main co-drivers were absent due to their presence at Motul Petit Le Mans. Uh, but nonetheless, it was a really strong performance from the Iron Lynx Ferrari. Uh, Fuoco finished alongside Alessandro Piaguidi and Alessio Rivera second in the race. Uh, one more position and it would have been enough. And for much of the race, they were in a winning position. Um, so it really came close to uh, being a reversal of the 11-point gap that the Akodas ASP crew had coming into the weekend. But they finished fifth. They did enough despite not having the same pace as the Ferrari during the race. Uh, Akodis ASP winning its first title in Endurance Cup. Those three drivers doing the same. Marcello having already secured the combined GT World Challenge Europe title. It was a real weekend of celebration for the French team, but it required a lot of work during the race. It certainly was. And speaking of a lot of work, Brendan Arib was a busy man this weekend. He's won two Endurance Cup titles in two different championships in two different countries on two consecutive days. My goodness. Inception was busy, but Brendan Arib hopped on a flight, as John mentioned, right after his opening stint at Motul Petit Le Mans and then sealed the deal in Barcelona. Yeah, what a machine. It was brilliant to sort of uh, sandwich it. I know, I know John spoke to Brendan um, earlier in the Petit Le Mans weekend and I managed to catch him just after uh, he secured the Gold Cup Championship for Endurance Cup. Um, and he was still buzzing, actually. I spoke to him after the race and it didn't look like he'd uh, lost any energy. He said that he had had four hours of sleep on the flight, um, got a got a business jet across from Atlanta over to Barcelona. Uh, I think that landed just before 7 a.m. and he was at the track for 7.30. So um, straight in for qualifying at 9 a.m. He was the first driver in. Interestingly, he said the biggest adaptation was the tyres. He'd been running on Michelin tyres throughout the Petit Le Mans weekend, but then adapting to the Pirellis and the different track at Barcelona, different track conditions. It was a real struggle in the initial stages, but he managed to keep it largely together during his opening stint. He was turned around by another car, which put some jeopardy into the title fight, uh, put Iron Links in front, but when their Ferrari had a drive shaft failure, that sort of paved the way for Inception to take the win. All the ups and downs um, reported in an interview with Arib on Sportscar 365, but it was a fantastic achievement. I can't think of anyone doing that before, winning two titles on two continents on the same weekend. It's really admirable, and uh, Arib with Inception Racing has uh, put in a lot into Sportscar Racing the last couple of years, so it was uh, nice in a way for him to uh, get the reward there on on two different fronts. We have to talk about the Iron Dames crew as well. It looked like they were on for a great result, but unfortunately it wasn't to be. It was another impressive run when they broke down. It was a drive shaft failure late in the race, costing them not only the class win, but also the championship. Yeah, it looked like it was nailed on and, and the pictures on the television cameras with uh, Sarah Bovey and Michelle Gatting in tears in the pits as they noticed the severity of the issue was really quite telling. I mean, the Iron Dames have been really strong in GT World Challenge Europe. Um, they've been strong everywhere, to be honest, in European Le Mans Series and the World Endurance Championship. But this was sort of their real greatest shot at a title, it seemed. They, they were absolutely nailed on after Arib had that early spin and dropped lots of positions. But in the end, it wasn't to be for them. Um, no doubt, though, they'll, they'll take a lot of positives from their performances over the year. And having won the Gold Cup class in the 24 hours of Spa, that was a real highlight. Uh, they've obviously got the WEC season still to round out, but it's been a really strong season for that program and uh, looking forward to seeing how it progresses. Absolutely. Despite the bad luck in Barcelona, they have been one of the best teams to watch all season across multiple categories. Before we let you go, we have to mention WRT, kind of the end of an era, a long-standing relationship with Audi. Now they ship their focus to prototype racing with BMW. Uh, but this was a fairly significant race for them in, in that it's it's the last one paired up with Audi. 
Yeah, I suppose in, the result wasn't exactly what they wanted. It was sort of a, a subdued run to fourth, kind of under the radar in the context of the championship scenarios and the uh, overall race victory battle. But uh, the number 32 Audi finished fourth with Dries Van Tor, Ricardo Feller and uh, Charles Witz. It was a hugely significant moment. I think sort of emotional was the kind of the word that was bounded about, I think, by a lot of people in the WRT and Audi sport camps, having spoken to both. Um, it's been a, a strange separation, really, because I think if WRT had carried on, or rather if the Audi uh, LMDH programme had carried on and, and there had been no changes at the upper echelons of the Audi management, I think WRT um, would have continued as usual. But in, in the context of the Audi LMDH programme ending, uh, WRT had to look for other options in prototype racing and it found BMW, which seems to have been a natural fit. Um, it was nice to see Audi Sports, former head of customer racing, uh, Romelo Liebchen there, as well as the current one, uh, Chris Ranker, um, all sort of giving a, a send-off. But I think there was also a, a feeling that Perhaps maybe it was something that a lot of people didn't want to happen and perhaps could have been prevented in some ways. But um, nonetheless, the, the future started on Monday. WRT testing two BMW M4 GT3s, opening a new chapter. It's going to be really interesting to see how that develops, not just from a team side, but also from a driver's side. Lots of movements going on in the GT racing landscape in this offseason, I think. Yeah, certainly is an, an exciting stuff upcoming for WRT. As we said, a great legacy with Audi, but plenty more good stuff to come. Well, John, let's dive into talking about some of the news of the week, and we've got plenty of good headlines for you. Cadillac has announced its World Endurance Championship hype driver lineup for 2023. Richard Westbrook, Alex Lynn, and Earl Bamber will be behind the wheel of the new Cadillac VLMDH. All three drivers currently drive, or I should say, just finished driving Cadillac DPI V.Rs in the IMSA season. Richard Westbrook was in the five car, and Alex Lynn and Earl Bamber shared a seat in the O2. They will take part in the seven-race World Endurance Championship calendar, including Le Mans, and they will act as the third car at the 24 Hours of Daytona next January. Yeah, an interesting um, driver combination here. I think there was no big surprise with Alex Lynn and Earl Bamber being part of it. Um, we knew they were both part of testing already with the the deep LMDH car. But with Richard Westbrook returning to um, Chip Ganassi Racing after his long spell with the, the Ford GT program, um, that was a bit of a surprise. Um, he, he's really proven himself at the wheel of a, a, a DPI this year with JDC Miller Motorsports um, right off the gate at, at Daytona. And um, I know he was telling me earlier in the summer, I, I have a full season ride. I, it's, I have a full season ride. It's really good and can't wait to share it. And honestly, I thought it was the JDC car again next year in WeatherTech, but um, I would have to say this is a step up, obviously, um, with the factory Cadillac racing operation and um, taking on the world championship. Um, really good stuff for for the Englishman. I'm really happy for him, as well as Alex and, and Earl, of course. Um, and as you said, Jonathan, this is going to be a third Cadillac um, LMDH car on the grid at the Rolex 24. So Chip Ganassi Racing will have two cars entered, and then Action Express will have one car, and we expect two cars for the full season. Yeah, this will be fantastic to see. Just part of the benefit of, of convergence, I suppose. You getting World Endurance Championship lineup drivers and cars, the same cars to come over and run in IMSA. That was really the point of it at, at the beginning of this whole process. So great to see that actually happening. Um, certainly will be exciting to see them in Daytona and then the rest of the WEC Championship as well. Speaking of the WEC Championship, it is seven rounds next year. Portermau makes its return, John, as the 2023 schedule has been finalized. 
Yeah, um, it was released uh, in the middle of the week last week, and we have seen um, Portimao, the six hours of Portimao added to the calendar. It's actually going to be running on the same weekend as the Long Beach uh, IMSA round, which is very unfortunate. There's actually two clashes on the calendar between IMSA and WEC. ELMS has a further clash with Petit Le Mans next year. So not ideal in terms of, you know, when trying to think of convergence and and all of the, the work that's gone in behind the scenes between the ACO and IMSA to... Um, um, set forth with their top prototype class heading into next year. And unfortunately, there's two direct clashes with the hypercar class and the GTP class um, in 2023. The first one, I, I, I think, couldn't have been avoided. Um, Portimao, it, it's on a tight schedule there from shipping um, st- a shipping standpoint after Sebring that will kick off the WEC season um, with the IMSA on the Super Sebring weekend. Um, again, separate races still with, with WEC having an eight-hour, a thousand-mile, eight-hour race and um, uh, the 12 hours of Sebring on, on Saturday as, as it normally is. But um, second round of the season being Portimao, just, a, I think, a three or four weeks later, um, then there's one week off and then it goes straight into the six hours of spa. So not much wiggle room there. And, and we know Long Beach can't be moved because of its historic date there with IndyCar and the tradition that it stands there. IMSA has no sway there. But um, in terms of the the second date clash between IMSA and WEC, uh, between the six hours of Monza and the uh, IMSA round at Canadian Tire Motorsport Park. I was really hopeful that there would be a, some leeway there to to change. I know shipping is a factor as well because the WEC cars have to get off to Fuji and they're looking to um, sea freight those um, after the after the Monza race. But um, still disappointing coming from you know again the convergence standpoint and all the excitement building between these teams and manufacturers. You know you're going to have teams impacted by these clashes um, with Porsche Penske Motorsport, um, Cadillac Racing with Chip Ganassi, both running both championships full time. Of course, they're going to have different crews, different drivers, but um, senior level staff, journalists, um, media, other people are always going to be affected by things like this, and and the fans as well because you know you're you're going to have races on top of each other or at different hours of the day. Um, at, at the end of the day, it is what it is. We've had clashes before, but it is, like I, I've said to some people, it's just disappointing that that this happened this way. Porsche Penske will use historic racing numbers for their new 963 next season. In the WeatherTech Championship, the number 6 and the number 7 will be used. Uh, we've seen these numbers before when these two programs have teamed up before. Think back to the RS Spider. They were on debut as with the other three GTP cars ahead of the test uh, for fans to see and media to take a look at. But nice to see the numbers finally on the Porsche Penske. Yeah, and I, I think this is a, night, a great nod to the the past and all the success that Porsche and Penske had with the RS Spider program, winning three um, team ALMS teams championships, winning drivers championships, um, you know, having a lot of success with that program. So it makes a lot of sense. And I know those numbers mean well, to, uh, have a lot of significance to Penske and Porsche. So uh, unfortunately, it doesn't look like we're going to have those same numbers in the WEC as Toyota traditionally uses the number seven and eight. So I think Porsche and Penske may have to get a bit creative in the numbering scheme of their cars in, in WEC next year. Rizzi Competizione is considering a Ferrari LMH entry. This would be huge. And on top of that, they've confirmed their GT program with Ferrari's new 296 car. We know that that car will be at Daytona and Sebring running a similar program in IMSA that we saw from them this year. But the LMH news is is really the big one. Giuseppe Rizzi looking to take on a huge partnership with Ferrari with their new hypercar. 
it would be absolutely amazing to see this materialize because Reese has been the longtime flag bearer for Ferrari in North America. And, and recently they've only been taking part in the endurance cup races, but uh, imagine a full season Ferrari LMH um, taking on all the LMDH cars in the WeatherTech championship. That would be a really, really cool. Um, not sure if it'll be a full season, not sure if it'll happen at all. You know, like, like you said, Jonathan, it's still under consideration. What we do know is that it won't happen until 2024 at the very earliest. Um, Ferrari and both uh, Giuseppe Ricci have ruled out it um, being possible next year. And that's why they're going to be focusing on that brand new 296 GT3 car. Um, for an expected GTD Pro campaign in at least the first two races of the season. Um, probably going to be doing the the full Endurance Cup again, we would have to think. But um, at least it was great to get that confirmation from Reese that they're going to be doing the, the Rolex 24 and the 12 Hours of Sebring. Um, drivers to be determined, we, we don't know yet. Um, it, a lot depends on which of the Ferrari drivers will be selected for the LMH program in the WEC, specifically around that Sebring weekend, because you don't want drivers to be pulling double duty between two vastly different types of cars on, on a weekend like that, especially how important of a weekend that'll be for the Ferrari LMH program as they make their debut at Sebring in 2023. Yeah, it certainly will. And even Daniel Sarah, in speaking to him after the race, that he's not even sure exactly what his program is next year. But Giuseppe Ricci has said, yeah, our drivers are certainly in danger of of getting pulled up to, to drive the hypercar. Um, which drivers exactly, if that's going to happen, remains yet to be seen. The Corvette Z06 GT3.R has completed an initial shakedown. This is separate, of course, from the Corvette that we've seen run in GTD Pro, as that's based on the uh, GTLM car. This is now a dedicated GT3 platform for Corvette, uh, an exciting development, and we're interested to see what Corvette ends up doing with this car. Yeah, really exciting to hear the development that the car completed its first shakedown. Um, it was at General Motors Milford Proving Grounds um, near Detroit. Uh, it's a GM-owned facility in, in Michigan. We don't know who was driving the car at the time, but we know that there's some additional testing with actual racetracks coming up in the next couple of weeks, and we should get some more information there. Um, certainly, there's a lot of effort being put into this car, as this is going to be the platform for GM and Corvette racing's initiatives in sports car racing for the foreseeable future. Um, we'll see the, the GTLM-based C8R again for another full season in the WeatherTech Championship next year, but this car will be um, replacing it in 2024 with an expected two-car factory effort in um, GTD Pro, and then also customer cars, um, both in IMSA and various championships around the world. And I know Laura Wontrop-Klauser has a lot of requests already um, from various teams, new teams, existing teams, um, those based in Europe, in, in I think in Australia, in, in Asia, all parts of the world, South America perhaps, wanting to run this new um, ZL6 GT3R. So um, lots of excitement building with this, and hopefully we'll get some more information in the coming weeks uh, about it. But it's great to see that everything is sort of on schedule for this program. Um, it's only making us on track you know, debut in testing right around now. And we still have a whole year to run until it'll be making its race debut officially at, at the Rolex 24 and 2024. So um, I, I would say they're in a really good position right now um, in terms of the development schedule. 
Absolutely, John. And you've got to feel that this is kind of an important car for GM and for Corvette as a program, obviously in the World Endurance Championship with the uh, all factory teams not being able to to continue. They have to be customer cars. Uh, as you said, there's a long line at, at Laura Wantrup Clauser's door to get their hands on, on this car. It should be a good one at that. But uh, yeah, a, a bit of an interesting car, an important one for sure for Corvette for the future of the program. Absolutely. Nissan has unveiled their ZGT4 car ahead of its 2023 debut. We'll see the car in better detail at the SEMA show, but we've already seen some prototype examples of it on track, and it's set for a fairly aggressive race schedule starting next year. Yeah, it's exciting to see Nissan sort of re-enter sports car racing with a a supported effort. Um, We've seen through the years of what their support had been and and programs ranging from LMP1 to GT3 to to the, the PlayStation GT Academy initiative and everything. And, you know, they've remained very active in, in Asia, specifically in Japan and in Super GT. But to see them uh, make a new GT4 car after, um, the I think, the 370 was the, their previous GT4 car a bunch of years ago, um, that's a really good development and, and can't wait to see more details about this program in the coming months. Yeah, it certainly will be exciting to see what Nissan does with this new platform. As always, you can read all about these headlines we've covered on today's show and more over on sportscar365.com. Well, John, let's dive into answering some listener questions. Uh, Our first one comes from Motorsport86 saying he's debating going to the Indy 8-hour race, but on the limited amount of teams and manufacturers who are going from a fan perspective, do you think it's worth going in person to watch or should they just stay home and watch it on TV? It seems like there is a, a limited number of spots to even sit as a fan at this track. And he was looking forward to this event, considering it's supposed to be an international event, trying to kind of balance out should they go or not. What's your opinion, John? Personally, I, I think going to a race and being there as a fan is always extremely important. And I think if you get a better impression being there trackside rather than watching it on TV, um, sure, the, the access may not be the same as, as some other tracks. Um, I know Indianapolis Motor Speedway is working on that for the IMSA race next year with having camping in the infield and whatnot. But we unfortunately won't have that this weekend. Um, nonetheless, I, I still think, you know, yeah, there's less cars. Yes, GT3 only, um, but I, I, I think it'll be a, a great race to, to follow. And as always, some great action on the track. Um, we got some great lineups, as we'll get to in the preview a little bit later. But um, yeah, I, I, I think there's definitely more pros. The pros outweigh the cons when it comes to considering attending this event. Absolutely. And you look at some of the, the talent and the driving talent that's going to be there. It should be an exceptional race and a really exciting one to follow. So we hope you do enjoy the event if you do decide to go in person. And uh, we certainly hope you uh, you enjoy what should be a great race. As always, we appreciate you writing in your questions and we love answering them on Double Stint. If you have a question you'd like us to answer right here on the show, be sure to post it in the comment section below this episode or take to Twitter and post your question using the hashtag AskDoubleStint. We'll put our heads together to answer it in an upcoming episode. Well, before we let you go, let's give you a preview of what's coming up in the world of sports car racing. The big one on the docket is the eight hours of Indianapolis, Intercontinental GT Challenge powered by Pirelli, and Fanatec GT World Challenge America powered by AWS with their final round, the eight-hour endurance race at the Indianapolis road course. John, this should be a good one. 
Yeah, as Motorsport 86 was referencing earlier in the in the previous segment about the Indy 8 Hour, we've got that coming up this weekend, um, the third round of the Intercontinental GT Challenge powered by Pirelli this year, and it's going to definitely be an interesting race. Okay, there's 25 cars. That doesn't sound like a lot, but it's actually not far off of where the numbers were last year when you just factored in the GT3 machinery. Um, I, I think that says a lot in, in terms of the strength of, of this event. Um, we don't have GT4s there, and that, that was definitely made by design. Um, speaking to Stefan Rattel, SRO boss, uh, about this uh, many months ago, um, they made the decision not to have GT4s um, return to this event just because they ended up getting in the way and causing some incidents. And this race should definitely be a more of a, a flat out event. And I look back to the Suzuka 10 hours um, a few years ago when that was GT3 only, I think with a couple invitational entries, but uh, there were G there were similar speeds to GT3. There were GT300 cars from Super GT. Um, and, and that race was a real, real entertaining one as well. Um, and in terms of international entries, you know, we were lacking a little bit, uh, but we still do have AF Corsa with some factory lineups, um, Team Craft Bamboo with the Mercedes, um, other factory drivers sprinkled in throughout the field. Um, the biggest absence is Audi, uh, which will be missing its first intercontinental race ever since the series inception in 2016. Um, that's a huge uh, storyline for sure. But um, nonetheless, I, I think we're going to be treated for a, a really good race on Saturday. Absolutely. And we can't wait to break it down for you, John. We know you'll be out there. Uh, we can't wait to talk to you about it on next week's episode. We'll also see DTM with a power of rounds at Hockenheim and NLS will see its seventh round of action of the season. That's it for us this week on the podcast. If you have the time, we'd greatly appreciate a rating and review on your podcatcher of choice. It really helps out the show. Thank you so much for joining us wherever you're tuning in from. For John DeGeese and Daniel Lloyd, I'm Jonathan Grace. We'll see you right back here next week for another edition of Double Stint.